When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Through the miracle of internet radio, the Never Say Impossible show offers a unique opportunity for the sharing of information and a unique opportunity to tell the world your story about your accomplishments, your passions, your products, and how you can be contacted. The show is designed to introduce you to new people who will inspire, motivate, and inform you of innovative ways to breathe new life into your goals and dreams. At NSI, anything is possible until you say it's not. Today is another great day because it's NSI Radio Day. We have fun here because we have fabulous guests that share what they've learned with you and get you thinking about life, success, business, and just about everything. Today we are going to be talking to Annette Rawlings, a modern abstract artist and author. Let me ask you something out there in cyberspace. When people go to an art exhibit, I think it's normal to think about who the person, who the artist was behind the painting. We wonder what kind of mind created the painting and why the artist chose to express themselves in a certain way. There is a mystery about the artists that we feel compelled to know who they really are. Today, you will not be disappointed because our guest, who is an accomplished artist, has an interesting story to share with you. Her life has been a roller coaster of highs and lows. Annette Rawlings, is a graduate of the University of Miami with a degree in art history and minor in Eastern philosophy. She studied fine art in Europe and the US, exhibits in museums and galleries in this country and Europe, such as the Miami Art Museum, Virginia Miller Galleries, and the Louvre in Paris. I'm impressed. Primarily exhibiting in New York and Paris, her art is currently at the Cultural Council of Palm Beach County through this December. Annette has written a memoir, Upside Down and Backwards. In this memoir, she gives us a peek at who she really is. It's a fascinating book. 
that anyone can identify with. It begins in 1943 when she was born into a dysfunctional Southern family and abandoned at birth by her mother. Her grandparents took over for the next three years until her mom showed up again. That's when the nightmare childhood began. She endured poverty, physical abuse, and kidnapping. It's a story that is best told by the one who lived it. Welcome, Annette. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. How are (laughs) you? (laughs) I'm wonderful and excited to have you with us, and you're quite a lady. And I have great respect for your work because, as I mentioned to you in an email previously, your story in many ways parallels mine. I'd like to know about your childhood and the mystery that really made you the person that you are today. So why don't you start at the beginning and tell us a little bit about that story. Well, everything I've done in my life has uh, contributed to my art and has made me who I am today. Beginning with when I was three years old, my parents neglected me and my father um, physically beat my mother and I ran to my closet to hide from this horrific scene that was going on. And while I was in my closet in the dark, my imagination grew and I would be in there for hours until I felt secure enough to come out. So it's a negative thing on the one hand, but on the other hand, it fueled my imagination, which has helped me create my art and my life. And I try to make my paintings very calm because that is what I was seeking because of my chaotic life. So that's another contribution. Also, the things that happened to me, like being kidnapped when I was 12, helped me understand that I could get through anything. And, you know, terrible things end and you can make a new beginning. My grandmother always said, make lemonade out of lemons. So that's what I tried to do. Um, I think you did it well, too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to stop you before you go any further and ask you about the kidnapping. Was this a kidnapping that was family-related or a stranger just kidnapped you and held you hostage for sexual favors, or what happened? Well, I was 12 years old at the time. My mother worked at Hertz Rent-A-Car, so we had lots of cars in the driveway, and I was left alone. So I used to sit in the car, you know, and pretend I was driving. Well, eventually, I learned to drive, uh, 
myself. I taught myself how to drive, and I would venture out around the block and then a little further. And this was in Miami Springs in Miami, Florida. And I finally ventured to Crandon Park because the high school kids were having a party, and I wanted to go and look. And uh, so I went there, and I just looked. I, I'm an observer. And as I was going to my car, these three young people, I guess they were like a little in their early 20s. Um, as I went to put the key in my door, they came up behind me, grabbed the key, opened the trunk of my car, threw me in the trunk, and started driving. And... After a while, they stopped. Um, they told me if I said anything or tried to get away, you know, they would kill me, kill my parents. You know, I was really terrified of what they were going to do. And um, they told me they were taking me to New York. Well, I had no idea, you know, what, why they were taking me to New York and what was going to happen. But... Um, I was getting sick in the trunk of the car, so they told me I could get in the back seat, and uh, if I was quiet, and I was in the back seat, and when we were in Pittsburgh, um, the police pulled us over. I don't know why. I got, It was a rental car. Maybe they were suspicious about that, uh, and then they decided to take everybody to jail to straighten it out so luckily I was saved at that point and nothing really bad had happened to me other than I was just scared half to death and they told me if I said anything again they would kill my parents kill me so I was afraid to say anything at all to, to the police and they put me in one cell and put them in another cell and I guess when they ran the license plate they you know got in contact with my mother and she said that I was missing and um, you know so she made arrangements to have me flown back uh, to Miami I, I never did my mother never really talked about anything so I don't know what happened to those three people um, she told me that I shouldn't talk about it so I never told my grandparents or anybody else it was just like our secret and I just went to school the next day after I got back later on I mean maybe five or six years ago when I started writing the book I asked my mother's sister about it and she said no she didn't know and my grandparents never knew that and you know my grandparents would have been furious at her for uh, leaving me alone so much no one really knew that she left me alone so and I never I never mentioned it it just I guess when you're a child you don't know what to say or if you should say anything and I thought maybe this was normal because I, I didn't know but good um, grief you were lucky you know you were probably targeted for human track trafficking that's what most people say mm. My goodness, what a harrowing experience. I can't imagine what you were thinking in the trunk of the car. I was terrified, and it's horrible to be in a trunk. I mean, you don't think about it, but every time they go over a bump, 
you know, you end up bruised and getting sick from the fumes and just it's, it's miserable. And one of the things that actually kept me sane and able to hang on was when I was lying in the back seat that started raining and I was looking at the back windshield and as we went through, I could see the colors, you know, of the signs and the, and the lights and uh, on the windshield, and I would get lost in those colors. So that's another thing that has helped me, you know, come through my life, are colors and being creative and doing something positive. And I've always been able to get lost in colors and patterns and and that sort of thing. So my art has played such a huge role in my life. Yeah, I really relate to that. That's exactly what I did when times got rough, particularly when I was totally paralyzed. It was all I had, a little bit of finger movement, but color. You could bring the sunshine in no matter how dark your world was with the stroke of a crayon, you could bring the sunshine in. I can understand why you, your, your brain absorbed the beauty of the color. I, I totally get that. And it, it shows in your artwork. Your work is, is the type of thing that does make you wonder, well, what was going on? Why did she choose these colors? Why are they so bold? They're really beautiful. And I will say to the audience that it would be well worth your while to visit the exhibit. And if you can't do that because you're in another part of the world, look her up online. And uh, you will see the magnificence of her work. So you feel what you suffered influenced your art in many ways absolutely I'm, I mean my colors directly came from my time when I was living in the jungle in Central America because there you don't have any pollution the sky is vivid the, you know the blues the greens the, everything are just vivid clear pure colors and the colors change according to what part of the world you're in I mean, that's why the south of France was always such a draw for artists because of the color that was there. And the northern European painters paint darker, like Rembrandt. And then you have Van Gogh, in the, who was painting in Arles in the south of France. His colors were, you know, magnificent and bright. And, and uh, so I traveled a lot. I studied in Europe. I studied in the United States. I was in Mexico studying all, you know, and Central America, and my colors changed in each location. And also the patterns change, and I always found peace. And my paintings are very calm and tranquil, and that's what I was searching for, and that's what I found. You know, Is it your personality? Art. It is my personality, yes. Mm. I'm a very calm person. In fact, my <laughs> daughter has never heard me scream. And she came home from school one day. She says, Mommy, you never scream. And I said, do you want me to scream? <laughs> so I screamed. She didn't like it. <laughs> uh, 
But even when I scream, people don't know I'm screaming. They look at me and they say, are you screaming? <laughs> yes, I'm screaming. <laughs> I'm, I'm a very calm person. Well, you know, you skip over the part of the travel, which is fascinating for me also, because I read you almost died in the jungles in Central America. What the heck was that about? Um, when I went down, I was uh, going to work on an uh, archaeological dig that was uh, based with the Museum of Mexico, and I went down with a friend in my VW bus uh, in the 60s, late 60s, 69, uh, after I'd been living in San Francisco, which again is another whole array of grays because of their fog and the Pacific Ocean. And anyway, we drove down um, through Mexico and down into Central America. Uh, they called it the Hummingbird Highway. I don't know why. It was not a highway. It was a cow trail. And we had to get out, you know, with a machete and chop things away so we could keep going on this cow trail until we reached the area where they were having the dig. And um, my early studies in art history were anthropology. So I knew a lot about it. I studied it, and I wanted to get a degree in Mesoamerican and pre-Columbian art. So that was the other reason I was there. Well, to make a long story short, they someone came to us and said that these villages were being attacked by rabid dogs. And we all had guns, you know, to protect ourselves. And whoever drew the short straw was going to stay at the campsite and everybody else was going to go and, you know, help hunt these rabid dogs. Well, if you drove five miles an hour there, you're driving fast. And then you actually have to drive over streams, you know, find a shallow part of a stream because there's no bridges and there's no roads and you know they were gone a long time and I was the one that drew the short straw so while I was there um, I had a birth defect that I didn't know about and in the US you, you know you can drink water all the time it's easy you have a lot of fluids to keep your body flushed out but in the jungle, if you want to drink something, you know, I caught rainwater, which was one way. The other way was to walk a mile to the stream and carry water back. And I boiled it and, you know, over a fire. You had to make a fire. Or you could break a coconut in half and drink coconut milk. So you didn't drink very much water. So because of this, I ended up getting an infection. And um, the Indians that lived... You know, in the surrounding area, they were a mile away, but that was close in the jungle. They would always come by in the evening when they were on their way out to hunt for whatever they were going to get, you know, small animals, that sort of thing. And they would leave me. They would share it with me. I didn't eat it. I didn't know what it was, and I just mostly ate fruit. And anyway, when they didn't see me, I remember them coming up into the hut. It's, it was like on stilts, maybe 10 feet off the ground, with a thatched roof, no windows, no doors or anything, just uh, very primitive. And I slept on the floor, 
and they saw that I was sick. I was I remember seeing them and I couldn't stand up. I was I knew I was sweating profusely and very, very sick. And they went and found a doctor that roams the mountains uh, and brought him. And luckily I wasn't allergic to penicillin because he gave me, I don't know, a huge needle of penicillin uh, for a couple of days until they could move me. And they took me, they made like a stretcher for me and took me to this uh, grassy, runway which was I guess about a mile away they had to carry me the Indians they were they were really great very gentle people and I had to wait for a plane to come in and they flew me to Belize where I had to wait in the airport Um, I, I called my grandparents and they got arranged you know for me to come back come back home and there I went you know under underwent procedures to straighten this uh, problem out which I what was it an intestinal infection no it was actually my ureters were too small at birth so by me not being you know um, being able to flush them out because of the lack of fluids they closed up and everything sort of backed up and I had um, uremic poisoning which is something you die from my doctor here in the United States said I was, you know, like a day or two or three away from dying. My goodness. And I looked like a coat. You dodged another bullet. <laughs> I did. I dodged another bullet. I really did. But because that happened to me, I ended up, well, I couldn't continue my studies because it took a year to undergo this procedure to straighten everything out because I I didn't want to have, um, like, plastic tubes put in, so they went through the process of stretching mine. So I found a job, uh, Dr. Henry Fields, who was an anthropologist, and I was proofreading his books, and I was doing uh, sketches of maps for him for his book and what other kind of sketches that he needed, and I could work anytime I wanted to, and I lived right there on his estate. And... Every morning, he would invite everyone that worked for him for breakfast on his veranda, this two-story historic home overlooking Biscayne Bay, which was just gorgeous. And he would always tell people my story and tell them I was an artist. And I ended up getting work that way. I mean, that was my first gallery show. And because of this illness, instead of continuing to get my master's in pre-Columbian and Mesoamerican art, I became an artist. So, I mean, that was my training. I had, you know, had all this training for years and years and years, but I never thought I could support myself on art. So that was the dividing road. You know, you, you just proved something I always say. I always say that within every adversity, there is a gift. You know, very often when we go through tough times, whether they're physical or emotional, we think, I'll never overcome this. It's too difficult. But you do. And when you do, sometimes that adversity offers you a gift. And in your case, 
It was a gigantic gift. The fact that you became a well-known artist. It's a beautiful story. (laughs) I'm inspired. I know. It was, you know, it just, that was the gift from, from that incident. Well, I think, I'm not sure what you could say the gift was from the kidnapping other than the fact that you were given a chance of survival because I don't know, you might have ended up anywhere in China, the Middle East, who knows, with uh, those three not so criminal people that kidnapped you. Let me right. let me call it spade a spade. I mean, they had evil intentions. Yeah. So um, you were lucky, but you know you did survive, and you went on with your life. And it's a shame that your mom made you keep it so secret. But maybe not. Maybe keeping it secret fested some of your creativity, created more within you. So maybe both that brush with the Grim Reaper, maybe that too in the jungles of of Central America, maybe that too added to your creativity. It's really very interesting, your story. I also read that you got very close with, with some creative thinkers and you were affected by the way they thought, Timothy Leary, and did you actually know them, or were you more involved in reading what their Uh, teachings were about? No, I actually, I met them, and um, when I was going to the University of Miami in Coconut Grove, there was a, uh, a coffee house, the Gaslight, and a lot of people from New York uh, showed up there to sing because there was a gaslight north in the village and the owner would send people down to the gaslight south for, you know, for them to practice, I guess. Just uh, people like Simon and Garfunkel came, uh, Odetta came, uh, David Crosby was there before, you know, before he Mm -hmm. was not known at all. Uh, So, Uh, Timothy Leary just showed up one afternoon. I went in to set up, and here's this guy sitting at a corner table, round corner table. Everybody's making a big fuss. And so I go over to see what the fuss is about, and I sat down. He was really nice, charming. And then he pulled out these sugar cubes that had um, LSD in them. So it was the pure thing. And I got three of them straight from Timothy Leary. He was passing them out. And uh, so that's how I met him. And how I met the other people was through being a waitress at the Gaslight while I was going full-time to the University of Miami. And, you know, they would some of them would stay after their gig was over before they had to go back to New York. So everybody would go get breakfast together. We'd hang out together. Um, David Crosby got a sailboat, so we would go sailing. Uh, Fred Neal 
um, was there singing. He's best known for the song Everybody's uh, Talking About Me. It was, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was a song, um, now I can't think of the name of the movie, but. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that's yeah, it. It's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, it's Everybody's Talking At Me. Yeah, at me. Right. right. I remember it well. Boy, you've had some busy life. I want to hear more, and I want to hear about your book, but we're going to take a very short break, so don't go away. We're talking to Annette Rawlings, and she has a lot to tell you about writing her memoir, what it meant to her, where you can get it. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Sign up today for my weekly radio show announcements and guest information and receive a free chapter of my newest book, Dancing on Your Disabilities, Never Say Impossible to Your Dreams, my story of perseverance, passion, hope, and happiness. Dreams do come true despite adversity. If I can do it, you can do it too. Here we are again. This is Never Say Impossible Radio. I'm Myra, your host. We're talking to the artist and uh, now literary artist as well, Annette Rawlings. Annette, tell everybody your website and how they can get in touch with you. It will be in the blog, but if they don't go to the blog and they just happen to be listening to this and they want to contact you or hire you or buy some of your work or get your book, where should they go? My web address is uh, AnnetteRawlings.com, and you can order the book from me if you like. I can sign it for you. Uh, also, you can go to Amazon.com and either get the printed book or it also comes on Kindle. I do sell it locally uh, in Lake Worth at the Cultural Council. So those are the places that you can pick up my book. Also, if you want to contact me directly, my email address is AnnetteRawlings at AOL.com. And I'd be happy to answer any questions you have if you um, would like to email me. Well, thank you very much. I also put the Amazon affiliate link to your book in my blog. So if somebody's lazy and wants to just click the <laughs> link, they can take them right to uh, Amazon. <laughs> thank um, you. Hey, you're welcome. Tell me why you wrote your book. Uh, I I relate to that also because I needed to write my book. I needed to do it. It was cathartic for me and it clarified a lot for me when I wrote my memoir. But what motivated you to write upside down and backwards? Well, a friend of mine uh, and I've had friends in the Grove for 50 years. We've all known each other for that long. He was a writer. And I really never talked too much about myself because 
you know, people knew different aspects of it because they lived it with me or knew about it at the time and were friends with me for different times. So I never talked about it too much because it's such a crazy story. And I really hadn't put it all together in my mind yet. You know, it's just like a lot of bizarre things happened to me. And, and I, I never thought about it because I was always moving forward and not reflecting back at, at any point up until, oh, I guess, maybe four years ago. And um, Bill kept saying, you have to write a book. You have to write a book. And I had never mentioned my past um, to my daughter. I thought, well, if she ever asks me, of course, I will tell her. But, you know, we just were involved with things that were happening in the present and with her and her school and growing up and all that kind of thing. And then when she graduated um, college, she's, um, she has her doctorate in clinical psychology and she's living in New York I went up to visit her and (laughs) we're sitting having coffee in Union Square and she says mom um, what did you do you know before you married dad so I gave her a brief you know rundown on the high points low points and she says you should write a book (laughs) that was the first (laughs) words that came out of her mouth and then that kind of gave me the okay, you know, to go ahead because I didn't, you know, want to put something out in public that would make her uncomfortable or whatever. And I was at a point where I was reflecting on my past and Bill uh, listened to me was and thought the story was interesting. He was a writer. And, and uh, then he passed away very abruptly. And I went to um, a bereavement group where you have to write. Well, that's one of the things they want you to do. So I started writing about Bill because I was with him, you know, during this time in his life. And, um, and so I was writing about that, but then I started writing about me and because uh, they have you focus your attention on yourself, which I really had never done. I Maybe I think a lot of women don't focus on themselves. They are focused on their job, their children, their husband, you know, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing, which is what Mm -hmm. I was focused on. And I really didn't focus on me that much. Um, So I did start focusing on myself. and, And I just went back to the beginning and just, it just all came out. I never thought about why I painted what I painted. I never thought, you know, about how how my parents were. I mean, they just left me alone. And uh, I must have been the first latchkey kid. I was certainly the first kid with divorced parents at the age of uh, 12. And, you know, they, they it was just a different family, and I didn't really know, realize how much different they were until I started going back and reflecting on it and putting, and I found this thread that I started um, taking it through my book of why I am, who I am, why I paint, what I paint, and I really never thought about it. I never knew these answers. So the book, you know, told me a lot about myself and made me more comfortable with myself and 
just uh, has been great for me. It's really very freeing. And as an artist and an author, what I have found interesting is when I paint, it's sort of like channeling. Um, The energy comes like from above and comes down, you know, through me, through my hands, and I paint. Uh, You know, I get lost in time in this process and just, I guess I'm, they call a, unconscious painter or subconscious painter and then as a writer it was the total opposite because I had to pull the information up from me out and onto the paper and it was completely different and I feel that I completed a creative circle by doing this and I know in my art it opened up more venues for me because it was just a process that opened me up more. And um, so I love that. It was very difficult, much more difficult than I thought it would be. It took me three years. I went back to school and studied uh, writing and speaking and debate uh, to learn how to do this and how to talk and give lectures, which I'm doing. And it, it really helped me grow. It's a very difficult process and very different. For me, painting takes me to another world. Yeah. I'm not here. I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm in my mind. I'm in the painting. And I don't think about eating. I don't think about anything but creating. Writing for me was very different, just like you. And because it was a memoir, it was at times painful. And it was pulling out memories that we push deep inside ourselves and maybe just don't address. And it was going back and opening up. And what it did for me was free me. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. And I also needed complete solitude. I couldn't have, I couldn't write when there was a lot going on around me. It was very different than painting. I didn't care if the house was on fire when I'm painting. And when it got too hot, I would notice. I say, oh, the house is burning. But when I was writing, anything that interrupted me or broke my thought pattern was extremely disruptive and the creativity would get lost. Mm-hmm. Did you find it that way? I know that I, well, I was, I live alone, so I don't have any visitors. I, I go very much into myself when I'm writing Um, and I found the same thing that I didn't want a disruption you know I had to complete that thought and I didn't want to have to go back and try and find find it again and pick it up again it's like losing a needle in a haystack Mm. hard hard to get back Uh, painting because I had my daughter growing up and a lot of distractions, I learned how to paint no matter what was going on because I did it every day and and uh, that was that was it. You know, I could concentrate on 
more than two or three or four things, and I could go back and and pick up just exactly where I left off with no problem. But writing was different, yes. Mm. And writing, uh, when you're really distracted and there's a lot going on around you, you know that you should be writing, you you tend to feel it's calling you. You need to do it, but the drive isn't there. It's not the same with painting. Uh, with painting, it's sitting there, and it, it it you want you can't wait to get back to it and uh, do what you see you need to do with that painting. With writing, it's it's a whole different story. Boy, very different. So, who should read your book? I think everybody would enjoy reading the book because. It's a human interest story for one thing, and I've done so many things that everyone can relate to it, you know, sort of live vicariously through the book. And, uh, I mean, it's not a children's book, but it's certainly a young adult book. And um, I think also a lot of people are interested in creativity. You know, they wonder if they have any creativity in them or their children, and they can see a lot about what creativity is about. And um, and I've had men and women both not be able to put it down. So, I mean, I haven't met anyone yet that said they didn't enjoy reading the book. And most mm-hmm. of them couldn't put it down. And... Everybody identifies with it on on one level or another. If they hadn't experienced it, their friend has. So, and a lot of people, art and creativity is a mystery. I mean, it's a mystery to me in a lot of respects. And, um, And it sort of helps to understand how artists create and why they create and also how you can live a life and like you said, find the gift that's in there or make lemonade out of lemons. And, and it's just, for me, it just, you just have to keep going. You know, I, a, lot, uh, a lot of people commented on how I kept going back and finding the inner strength to continue, uh, and that's true. And then a lot of people commented on it, uh, how personal it was, like reading someone's diary or having a conversation with me. So it's a very easy book to read. And especially in South Florida, a lot more people can relate to it because it gives a history of Coconut Grove, Miami, South Florida, which uh, is interesting too. So I've had a lot of success. The book is also in the archives of the Smithsonian under American Art. It's in the archives of the National Museum for Women in the Arts at the University of Miami. Uh, I've gotten really excellent reviews. Wonderful, wonderful. I I want to encourage everybody to read Annette's book, Upside Down and Inside Out. What would you say to an aspiring artist today who's really struggling, I find that creativity is innate and children 
express themselves creatively, some better than others, but naturally they don't need a reason to create. Uh, Take a baby. A baby will take whatever is laying around, whether it's safe or not, and play with it and imagine things and try to create something out of what they can get their hands on. So I think it's an innate part of a human being. However, as we grow up, some of us end up stifling our creativity. We get stuck in the school, uh, you know, popularity thing and, and sports and so many things distract us from our basic creativity that we never develop it. We never really focus on it. And how many times have you heard people say, I could never do that? Well, maybe they could if they had the desire and the passion to want to learn and the hunger, because obviously you had a hunger that you just kept feeding by going to school and learning and studying and being around people that were creative and artistic. But what do you say to a kid who's really struggling and wants to be very recognized as an artist? How would you inspire them? Well, I would just say to keep on keep on painting. I mean, I did a lot of studies. I have, you know, a background in art history and fine art, um, uh, Eastern philosophy, and religion. And that really ties the whole world of art together, all those aspects. And I, I believe in, in learning. I, I know there's a lot of artists that don't. They, they're self-taught. So that's a completely different attitude. I think you just have to keep keep working at it. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that my art has sold from the first time I showed it to the public, which has allowed me to continue to paint and continue to work. And I have had um, gallery owners come up and ask me to show in their gallery and when I'm on that path of painting, it just keeps leading to something else and something else. Uh, my world sort of disintegrates when I'm not painting because then I'm not on that path and I, I'm not working. So um, I gave myself five years, and if I couldn't support myself, I was going to go back to work. In the meantime, I was working and in, in painting and you know doing that for five years and Luckily, I was able to continue uh, painting, and I've supported myself my entire life uh, through my art. But I do a lot of different things. I, I paint, I do jewelry, I make clothing. Um, like, for example, one of my art patrons was in the manufacturing business, and he bought uh, two of my paintings, and he called me up after looking at them on his walls and said, how about let's putting them on, put them on fabric? Great. Well, I went to New York with him, and we gave a presentation to all the heads of the federation, fed, uh, federal department stores, 
and they bought it. I mean, the sample run. What kind of clothing did he make? He made ready-to-wear skirts and tops and pants. It's funny because um, 7th Avenue isn't 7th Avenue the way it used to be. When I left um, the cosmetic industry, I went into millinery design in the 90s. And uh, it's funny because I'm like you. I believe in constantly learning and learning. And I love fashion. And I went back to school because my body was not able to do the traveling that I had been doing for 25 years in, in corporate America. So I, I went to fa- back to Fashion Institute where I had gone to school originally and uh, I was in school with kids that were in their 20s. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, I'm not looking for a job. I'm just looking to express myself creatively. Remember how I said that in, within every adversity there is a gift? Mm-hmm. For me, it was when post-polio syndrome got really bad with me, which is the late effects of polio, and they you get dramatically weaker and develop new symptoms. Mm-hmm. I had to find a new way to make a living. And at first, I wanted to stick my head in, in the sand and, and, and just... I, I wanted to give up. It, it felt as though I, uh, my legs were being cut off uh, when I was in the middle of walking. So I, when I went back to millinery, to me it was just another art form. Do you know that when I graduated, and, and one of the things in FIT is they would tell all the students that it's an industry that's not that popular anymore and it's very difficult to get a job and blah 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 i walked out and the metropolitan museum came uh, metropolitan opera came knocking and then i got a job in a in a very big hat company at the time so in i think it was around 2005 or seven Seventh uh, Avenue, the way it was, died. When did you get into textile design? It was in the early seventies. Like oh, that's when it was before. still hot. Oh yeah. yes. Yeah. Wow. And, oh and, well, that's fabulous. That's exciting. And, yes, and I went to New York uh, because people needed to know how did I make my colors because they weren't colors that were you know, on their regular color chart. In um, DuPont, we were using a new fabric that DuPont had just created with lycra in it. Of course, you're well familiar with that product today mm-hmm. because it's bathing suits, you know, uh, workout material, ballet, whatever. But at the time, it was woven into cotton, dacron, and uh, lycra. And so this is what we used. And... Um, they put me up at the Plaza Hotel, so I was living at the Plaza, which was really great. I had a car and driver, which was also great, and it took almost a year to complete 
this project. I was meeting all kinds of interesting people, and and then I went on what they call a trunk tour, where you're on TV one day, and then you're in uh, the show at the uh, store the next day. You have a fashion show, and then my art was showing in local galleries. So it was very exciting. And uh, DuPont sent someone with me to make sure, you know, that I got on the right plane, that where my bags were where they were supposed to be, that I got to the hotel, which, I mean, it was just a fabulous time in my life. So from the jungles, from the trunk of a kidnapper's car to the jungles in Central America where you almost died, to New York living the life. Yes. Wonderful, <laughs> fabulous story. I love it. I'm smiling from ear to ear. And I know our listeners will be smiling from ear to ear. And that I want to thank you for spending your time with us today to tell us about all that you're doing, your memoir, and your very interesting life, and your very talented soul. So thank you, and all the best to come your way with your new book, well, your book, and whatever pieces of art are on display and being sold currently in Palm Beach County and around the world. Thank you. No, you're welcome. Very welcome. And thank you out there in cyberspace for listening. You can find us on Facebook.com, Never Say Impossible Radio. Remember to like the page when you visit. You can also find us listed as capital NSI, the Ampi sign, and capital D-O-O-D radio. That's for Never Say Impossible and Dancing on Our Disabilities Radio. On Stitcher.com, on iTunes, on TuneIn, and of course on my website at MyraGoldick.com in the show archives and the blog. Until next time, never say impossible. You've been listening to Never Say Impossible, a show created to inspire, motivate, and inform the public with unique guests and content. NSI is a powerful way to connect with millions of people all over the world. Visit NSI at Myra's website, www.myragoldick.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.